Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. The one is God's heart for others. It's an evangelism series. We have seven principles of conversational evangelism that we've been walking through. And this week's is section five. There's actually a workbook that we created. Those are also in the lobby. So whether you're a part of a group, and whether that group is doing this study or not, or you're not a part of a group, and you want to follow along with the sermons, you can grab a workbook and take notes. There's weekly practices, like Big surprise, this week, Know Your Story is going to be to actually talk about your story, how you met God, to rehearse that thing, to know it, embrace it deeply. And then, who knows, maybe even share your story with someone who views the world differently than you do. But we're in this evangelism series, the one, because we feel like we need to get back to God's heart for others. We feel like, at least at this place, at Watermark, that we are called to God conversations. That means uh, any dialogue, hopefully a two-way dialogue between someone who has a relationship with Jesus and the Bible and someone who does not, that we, that we go out of our way to have those conversations. And in the culture today, just even the Christian culture today, you can look up the data and research. If you go to the, if you Google, search, Google search Barna, just Google search the word Barna. It's a premier research institute. And they had a study that came out this last year that said that almost 50% of millennials believe it's offensive to share your faith. No, sorry, not just millennials at large, Bible-believing, church-attending millennials felt that it was offensive to share their faith, and that would include, you know, I'm part of that generation. So not picking on that generation, I think a lot of us might feel unsettled around this idea of sharing our faith. So that's the first reason why we're teaching a series on this. We want to get back to God's heart for others. Another reason we've devoted an entire seven-week series to this is because we feel there's probably a lot of apprehension around talking about our faith. Fear, the common denominator of fear. Fear of failure, fear of offending, fear of not knowing enough, fear of loss. Maybe we lose a relationship because we talked about God. Maybe we lose our job. That's quite frankly, probably a very near fear for some of us in the room. The common denominator is fear. And so we want to lean into this series and teach to the aspects of God conversations, but we also want to pray. And that's what I want to do right now. I was listening to a song on the way in by uh, Brian and Katie Torwalt. Pretty wild last name. It's called Prophesy Your Promise. The song talks about this idea that when, when we only see in part, when our circumstances are not clear, we don't know what God is doing or why he's doing it. In those moments of uncertainty and doubt and crisis, we'll hold on to his promises. We'll declare the things that we know to be true. That God is still real. That he is still in control. That's what the whole song is about. And there's this great stanza, this, this, this line that I keep coming back to again and again and again. It says, um, fear, fear can go to hell. <laughs> fear can go to hell. Shame can go there too. I know whose I am. God, I belong to you. I believe that. We believe that. We believe that fear is not from God. We believe that if we're struggling with fear or we're, we're struggling with uh, shame, that there's actually a spiritual battle going on. Not a battle of this natural world, as Paul says. Not a battle of flesh and blood, but a battle of the spiritual realm. So if you're battling with fear this morning, 
in terms of sharing your faith or any other level, I want to pray right now. And even if I can't be sitting next to you, I think that there's power in prayer. At Watermark, we believe that what happens when we pray is actually, imagine these two hands, my right and left hand, and that we offer up words, we speak words from our mouth in faith or expectation, even an ounce, even a small tiny seed, Jesus said, of faith, we offer these words in prayer. And in the other hand, God reaches down and literally hooks up with us, hand in hand, arm in arm, faith, the believer and the doer of all things, and powerful things happen. Supernatural, even transcendent things happen when we pray. It may not always be the way we expect. It may not always be the perfect outcome, but that's what we believe about prayer here. So yes, even in this moment, as you're all sitting there and I'm standing up here, could you bow your heads and let's pray in expectation for the person sitting next to us, for ourselves, that God, I just pray right now that if there is fear, that you would banish it. You would, you would wrestle that fear, Lord, that you would take it off of our hearts, off of our minds, off of our bodies. You would, you would pin it down and throw it back to the pit of hell where it belongs. You can do that. You're strong enough. You own and rule this whole universe. You set this universe into motion, so therefore you are still in control. Even when we feel out of control, God, banish our fear. And just because the word was there on the song, and I feel like you gave me that for this morning, Jesus, if there's someone here who's battling shame, whatever it is for, Jesus, wherever that shame came from, whatever that shame is about, would you take it, Lord, off of the men and women who are sitting here this morning, teenage, 20-something, millennial, middle-aged, and, and beyond, whatever that shame is, Lord, would you take it and release people from shame and fear right now? I pray, Lord, by your name, by your power, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, workbook session number five is Know Your Story. The story of how God met you, how Jesus entered your life. Last weekend, I had the amazing opportunity to watch a, a most incredible evangelist on display, in person, in the park across the street. We hosted this event, the Del Mesa Pumpkin Patch. It's our second year of doing so. It's a neighborhood literally right under the freeway that we've kind of adopted and we try and serve and love on. Now, a couple hundred people came out. It was incredible, guys. It was insane. Like, the city would fine us if they found out that many people were at this small little park. And Francisco, who is our Spanish pastor, we started a church in Santa Ana a few years back, and uh, he's the pastor who gives leadership to that church, and he's in our staff meeting every week here at Watermark. Francisco is an incredible evangelist. He knows how to talk about his faith with people. And he was on fire this particular day. He was like talking to people, and there was a great percentage of Latinos there. So he was speaking in his native tongue of Spanish. And at a certain point, he would grab me, or he'd grab Bucky, our other lead pastor, and he'd bring us in and, and just introduce us so they could have a name to a face in case they joined us the very next day, Sunday at church. It was a Saturday event. And I watched Francisco, and I listened to Francisco with, because uh, I can understand Spanish better than I can speak it mostly. And the masterpiece of how Francisco would use his story and share the gospel. He invited me over and he said, I, I want you guys to meet Ben. Of course, this was in Spanish. I want you to meet Ben. Ben and his wife have seven kids. And then, of course, pause for dramatic effect. And the women or men he was talking to would always ooh and ah. And then he would use it. He would use his natural surroundings, the people, places, things around him. And he would connect it to a spiritual reality. He would say, and, and you know, this man, Ben, his heart of fathering these kids is God's heart for you and is God's heart for the church. This God, I believe in the God of the Bible, has a father's heart 
He's for you, a heart of adoption, a heart of acceptance, a heart of naming. He's all for you, and he was all for me. This is Francisco speaking. He was all for me when he radically entered my life through one of the pastors at Watermark, and I left my life of addiction and alcohol and divorce and pain and sin. And God did that. He entered my life through the words and hands and prayers of another. And now I'm a pastor of a church in Santa Ana. And every single week I do ministry. I serve people. See, Francisco has two jobs, his, his, his church job and his other work job. And he's doing that ministry every single day. Lives, dozens of lives. Here and in south of the border in Rosarito have been affected because of this man, Francisco. And he shares this. He dictates all this to these people. And I'm just watching like, wow, to behold this man in his master class on evangelism. It made me think, do we know our story like that here this morning in the room? Do we know our story like that? Can we make those sorts of fluid transitions and just excellent connections? Can we share our story in any context or in any length of time that we're afforded? If not, fine, that's okay. That's what we're here to talk about this morning, all right? We're going to dive into that, and that's the big idea from the workbook, from the series, what we're talking about this week, know your story. What was life like before Christ? What happened in the moment that we met Christ? What was meeting Christ like? And after Christ, what did our life look like? I feel like there's an old word that's unhelpful here. You could say BCAC, and instead of Christ, it would be conversion. This classic, traditional, old school word around conversion. But guys, where I'm at today, I, I see so much mystery. I see such subtlety in the handful of people. Some of you in this room who have just come to faith at Watermark or through the people at Watermark in the last month, you know who you are. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And I've watched as you've met Jesus, and you're at that moment. And it wasn't like this lightning bolt, miraculous thing like we're going to talk about in the Apostle Paul's life. It was subtle and stretched out and mysterious and, and wonderful and awe-inspiring, but in a totally different way. And there's two things you need to know about meeting Christ, or really two words, okay? There's two words I want to give you. When you meet Jesus, when you start to join this tribe called Christianity, you really start the journey of faith, Okay? And there's two Greek words I want you to know about this journey of faith and knowing your story. It's important for us in the room because a lot of us, unlike those who have come to faith this last month or two, were born and raised in the church, like myself. So you're 10, 20, 30, 40 year plus practicing Christians. This is important for everyone in the room. The two words that I want to talk about this morning relative to our story, the first one is this word faith. It comes from the original word pistos. Now I know that sounds like pissed off and that's not what I'm saying, that's not what this word is at all. This word is pistos. And this word pistos was used several times in the New Testament Bible. So the Bible is one book with 66 books. And in the New Testament letters, books, it's used all over the place. You know what this word really means more directly? It means allegiance. It means allegiance. And so for those of us who are new to faith, our allegiance may not come overnight. For those of us who have been a part of church for years, we may be growing in that allegiance. What started as a seed from our parents or our family system now has a new season and a new chapter of growth where we give more and more of our heart, more and more of our time, more and more of our resources to Jesus. Because that's what you do when you have allegiance to a king. And that's the second word. The first word was pistos, which is faith. The second word is Christ. It's up there, left and right, isn't it? Christ is actually a Greek word. You've been using it all the time, and you had no idea it was Greek. Way to go, you scholars. 
Christos is a Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Savior, King, Lord. That word Lord is kingship, rulership, authority. So when we talk about faith in our story, you guys, I want us to have the accurate definition. Can you see now why those words are important? Because we grow in allegiance to the king. And I was praying for someone just this last month here at Watermark who is newer to this, this whole God, church, Jesus, Bible thing. And almost as if to like pull a confession out of them, I was like, so do you, you know, proclaim allegiance? And I just thought, man, how unfair is that? Like this is day one for them. They don't even know what that means. Like we just, we just opened the Bible and they're reading their first verses, truthfully, ever. And so we need to have an accurate understanding of what, it me- what faith means and to be on this journey together. Whether you're brand new, what that will mean for you today, or whether you've been here years, what does it mean to grow in allegiance and then share that story with others? Today we're talking about Paul, the Apostle Paul, and how he met Jesus. So a little background around Paul. Again, half the room has heard this before. But let it just be remarkable all over again, can we? Because Paul's life as this legendary uh, missionary and early church founder is it's insane, the type of person that God chose for this work. Okay, so Paul. Paul grew up this devout Jew outside of Jerusalem. He was born and raised in this place called Tarsus, which is in modern-day southern Turkey. Okay? And so what that means is he was intensely Roman. He was intensely Greek. He grew up in that culture, that custom. He was trained in the philosophies of the culture. And yet he was also trained in the highest, I once heard a pastor say it this way, for most of the men will dig this. He was like the SEAL Team 6 of Navy SEALs of Jews, all right? The most insane, elite, highest form of Jewish tutelage he had. So he was intensely and purely Jewish. He was a Pharisee. Even even to get that title was elite of elite. And yet he was also intensely a part of the Roman culture, Why is that phenomenal for us today, you guys? Because we're in a similar era in time right now, especially if you are like me and you are well-versed in the motions of Christianity and you've been a part of church culture for some time and you know God's word. If If you've been reading God's word for more than 20 years, you are qualified. Let me remind you, those are some serious repetitions. And yet you are also in this culture post, you know, progressive, hyper-individualist, hyper-political, modern-day, post-modern, that was what I was looking for, culture today that is highly irreligious and highly secularized, and yet what's your place in that? That's the subtle question I want to start to gnaw at you and pick at you. If you look at Paul, he did this masterfully well. He was like Francisco. He did this masterfully well, where he didn't like a lot of our predecessors, a lot of my predecessors, as part of the Christian church brand did, where they sat from their high church tower and they got on their sermonizing soapbox and they said, down with you culture, you're going to hell, you're burning, churn or burn, and they held picket signs and they did that. That was not the Paul way. Paul, in a sneaky kind of, the word that is one of my favorite words, subversive, it means sneaky, he infiltrated the culture And then from within, partnered with God to redeem it. That's every single one of our jobs. Okay, that's part of Paul's background. As we turn to Acts 26, that's where we're going to be today. You can open your phone and go to chapter 26, open a Bible. It's going to be on the screen as well. As we look at Acts chapter 6, there's a whole lot going on for Paul. And if you're newer, you need to know. Paul, as I said, was this highly trained Jew. He was also part of the culture. As part of his Jewish job, he was on the hunt for newly formed Christians. 
He had marching orders from the lead Jewish structure and system to go out and find Christians, followers of the way, as they were known. And Jesus meets them. That's what we're going to talk about today. And he gets in trouble for doing it in a wild way all the time. And he gets put on trial because he's disturbing the peace. So here we are, okay? This is the Israel-Palestine region. This is the story. He's on trial. It's kind of more like a hearing. It's kind of like a soft hearing. It's not a formal trial. It's about 58 years A.D., He's on trial for disturbing the peace because he was hunting. He was, he was hunting Christians, and in that work, the Jews were super offended. And they bring him to this trial. Jesus meets him radically, and then he starts to travel throughout the Middle East and the Mediterranean, sharing how Jesus met him. He's on trial. There's two characters you need to know. They got crazy different ancient names. There's Agrippa and there's Festus. These guys are Romans. They're under the authority of the Roman regime. They're basically puppets, okay? They're local. Um, authorities under the Roman Empire, and they're the ones that are hearing this, this, this trial for Paul. These men's position is to keep the peace. You understand? That's why Paul's really on trial. You can go through and read the whole chapter and the preceding chapter and get all into the nitty-gritty, but right, Pax Romana, right? The peace, to keep the peace. Now, Paul's stirring that up. They don't like that, so that's why they're even giving him an audience, because he's stirring up the peace. And now we're in this courtroom, fabulous. You got to picture it, okay? It's like an ancient auditorium. All the pomp and circumstance, all the elitists, all the Roman wealthy, all the leaders, all the powerhouse are there to stand before this guy, Paul, really a nobody, nothing Jewish leader, shackled, and he's going to present his case before these people. In Paul's story, you guys, remember we're talking about know your story. It's still on the screen. You can even see from Paul's structure of how he shares his story, there's his life before Jesus how he radically met Jesus, or how Jesus met him, rather, and what his life looked like after. That is the structure that every single one of us can remember as we go into our God conversations, wherever you are on that allegiance cycle, that allegiance pendulum, okay? So we're going to get into this. We're going to read quite a bit of scripture. Are you still with me? That's pretty good. That's over 50% reporting, and I dig that, and I can do something with that. I can work with this, all right? This is chapter 26. This is the before Christ passages, verse 4, okay? The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. Paul has the microphone. They give him the mic. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, he's talking about those other witnesses who have seen his life, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. I told you guys about that, right? Verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And they were put to death. I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue, the church of that time, to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme, to speak against the Jewish law and custom. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. These are Paul's marching orders. This is Paul's life before Jesus. It's aggressive. He's literally a door knocker, but instead of Jehovah's Witness and our sweet Mormon friends, okay, he's dragging them from their rooms, putting them in prison, and some of them putting them to death. This is an aggressive marching order that he has, an aggressive commissioning that Paul has. Before we get to the application from these scriptures, here's what I want you to hear. What I interpret from this passage so far is that Paul was known for an incredibly misplaced zeal. Now, zeal is, an, is a vital theme of the Old Testament books. 
about 39 of the Old Testament books of those 66. And zeal is in this incredible theme that God goes after when he calls these people, his prophets, his leaders, to go and do his work. Paul has a tremendous zeal. I love what one famous pastor, Andy Stanley, says. He pictures Paul's calling into action to work now for Jesus instead of for these murderous uh, elitist Jews. He pictures a scenario where God and Jesus are up in heaven and they're talking about who they should send to start their church. And God looks to Jesus and says, what do you think? Who do you see? And Jesus says, I don't know, maybe Peter, James, John, you know, some of my close crew that I ran with. You know, they're okay, they're good, God says. But what about this guy Saul? Because that was his name before he met Jesus. He was Saul to Paul. So what about Saul? And Jesus says, are you serious? The guy who's door knocking and ripping people out of their homes and murdering my, my, my few, my, my sheep, my, my, you know, this sensitive moment. He's taking them out. He's putting them in prison and murdering them. What do, you, what do you mean? And God says, yeah, but look how good he's doing it. Look how fast he is. Look how much zeal he has. Look how much boldness he has. Look how much passion he has. Look how good he is. Man, he's good. I want him on the right side. I want him on our team. He had a misplaced zeal for you, for us. As we think about our stories before meeting Jesus, before Jesus radically entered our life, what was that thing that was misplaced? What value or priority or resource was not where it's supposed to be? Not at the, at the throne or at the feet of the anointed king, the Messiah, the Christ. What was misplaced in our lives? I want to do a quick census just to humor me here and it will help direct where we're going. How many of you today, by an actual raise of hands, you can do it. A little physical exercise will get the juices flowing on a Sunday morning. And it's okay to let some of those wiggles out at church. It's safe to do that here, okay? How many of you were born and raised in the church? And before you raise your hand, I don't mean like Christmas and Easter. I mean like, uh, probably made it past 30 reps in a given year where you showed up at church, okay? Raise your hand if you were born and raised in the church. Pretty much past like 30 reps in a year. You're born and raised in church. Keep them high. Just keep them raised. I want to do it until you get some numbness just in the back here on your traps, because then I'll know that you're really committed. All right, cool. You guys look around. You can see that, right? That's a, that's a, that's a pretty radical majority. Now, just bear with me. I'm not going to call you out. You can put your hands out. Put your hands out. Put your hands down. Now, actually, you might raise your hands twice, and that's okay. Raise your hand if you came to, to a relationship with Jesus later in life. However you define that, later in life, as a teen or beyond, you came to faith in Jesus later in life. Truly, as you would define that, you came to faith in Jesus later in life. That's awesome. Okay, so then we have a pretty even split. We all have a moment. Here's what I want you to hear. Whether you were born and raised in the church like I was, or if this is your first month, we all have a moment where we lived a life apart from Jesus. We all have a life where we lived apart, lived apart from Jesus. And for those of us who are maybe trained in these motions, as I say, it could have been last week. It could have been last week. And I think that Paul's story will speak to us in that way. We've all lived apart from Jesus. And that's as you know your story and practice your story and share your story, you need to start there. Because if there wasn't a problem, if there was no need for a Savior, what are we even talking about? So you started with a need, which was part of your life apart from Jesus. If those of you who came to faith more recently, as a teen or a young adult or middle-aged or wherever you were, great. Maybe there's more contrast. 
Maybe you really could tell there's a concrete kind of decisive moment for you in a season you'll never forget. Use it. Know it. Rehearse it. Share it. That's awesome. And for those of us who were born and raised in the faith, it's okay. You still had, maybe even last week, a personal encounter with Jesus. Use it. That's your story that God wants you to use. Meeting Christ. So Paul goes on, and then he actually meets Christ. Verse 12. On one of these journeys, remember, he was going door to door. He was door knocking. He was ripping people out of their homes, putting them in prison, and killing some of them. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, like he said. About noon, King Agrippa, that's who he's talking to, I'll give you a little secret. Even in a courtroom as grand as this auditorium, he's got a one. Remember, the series is called The One. Paul, even the pomp and circumstance and all those bodies, King Agrippa is who he's praying for, who he's talking to, who his heart is for in this moment. It's powerful. Don't miss this. As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. That's intense. Blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's weird. We're going to come back to that. Verse 15. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? This would be an example of one of those dramatic, wild stories. Some of us in the room can relate to this. There's a guy, a friend of mine, he's here today, his name's Ronnie. Some of you know him as the bullet guy. Yeah, the bullet guy. Because it was about a month ago we did baptisms and Ronnie shared his story about how he was living a life of sin, a life of crime, a life of addiction. And then God met him. And even after God met him, because he asked God, I need to see you. I need just, I need some proof. I need some evidence. That's okay to pray that sometimes. And just, I need to see you, God. And God, God miraculously healed him from a bullet wound that he had. It was incredible. You can go back to the last Sunday in September and listen to that podcast. His story is recorded there. It's amazing. But a lot of us are not Ronnie the bullet guy, and we're not the Apostle Paul. We didn't have that kind of Jesus moment. Does that make it any less miraculous? That's the question I want you to process this morning. One of a few that I really want you to think about. And I understand I'm speaking to a few, and I'm speaking to myself because I was born and raised in the church. And I didn't have that powerhouse shock and awe, radical, miraculous thing. Does it make it any less miraculous? Well, we're going to take a detour really quick and talk about what happens in the heart of a new believer. When Jesus invades a heart, here's what he does. Uh, Paul actually said this in Ephesians, different chapter, different book. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? Even... Well, you said it accurately for the word, but let's give it one more chance. When we were what? Dead in our transgressions, our sins, our shortcomings, our misplaced priorities, our misplaced zeal, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What's Paul saying? He's saying very clearly, before Christ, before conversion, if you want, before transformation, before meeting Jesus, we were dead. Our hearts were dead. And then we meet Jesus and our hearts become alive. When something is dead and then something becomes alive, that's supernatural, isn't it? That breaks the natural laws of this world. That's supernatural. Jesus was dead. He was raised. And if you're newer to church, you can, you can check the history books. There are witnesses and histories and authorities. They could not find Jesus' body. Okay? Everyone knows publicly, the Roman government knows, they watched, they saw he was crucified. They know, they cataloged that he was buried in this tomb at this place, and yet they do not have the body. It's a historical fact, and it's a miracle from death to life. When you all 
meet Jesus, when he meets you, he gives you a new heart. And it is a miracle. It is. It's supernatural. It breaks the natural laws. It breaks the natural laws. So regarding our salvation, here's what I want a lot of us to challenge. What do we do with that miracle of salvation? Because if you're like me and you've been in the church for some time, I think we forget just how powerful and radical and awe-inspiring that is, even if it wasn't dramatic, like I put on the scene. It may not have been a drama, but it's still a miracle. So when I'm following Francisco at the park and I'm hearing this guy talk about being saved from sin and divorce and addiction, wow, my mind is blown. That's, that's pretty easy to see because his life was a mess. Yet some of you maybe like me, it's different. Because as a teenager, you saw how you needed to be saved from your selfishness like I did. And I was baptized when I was 15 and I was saved a little bit more. My allegiance was a little bit more from self to God. And then a little bit more when I met my wife in college because I was still on the throne of self. And what can I get And my status and my name and my fame? And I met this woman who was about serving people in Uganda and just forgetting everything that she came from in order to sacrifice her very life to serve people in Uganda. I thought, wow, thank you, God, for using this person, putting them in my life to just move me one step further in my allegiance. He radically entered my life, radically changed my heart, and so on to this very day. So if you're here and you are maybe been a part of church for a while, are you resisting the miracle of what God did in your life those years ago or maybe even last week? If so, then listen to the words of Jesus as we go back one slide, the kicking against the goads, your favorite part. What the heck is that about? It's an idiom. It's a, it's a, it's a phrase in that first century period for cattle whips. Cattle whips. Jesus is effectively saying to Paul, what are you doing going against the cattle whip, man? Stop. Come and fight for me. It'll go so much better for you. Stop fighting this with your stubborn resistance. Do we have the same stubborn resistance today? I will ask these rhetorical questions. Sit on them. Pray on them about accepting our salvation as a real miracle, about believing that we were truly regenerated, that you who have been saved are free indeed. You're free. You have a new heart. You have new life in you. That's worth something. And God wants to use it in your story. Ask those questions. Pray through those questions. After Christ. Here we go. This is what Paul said here in verse 15. This is Jesus responding to Paul. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. Those are non-believing Jews. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Spiritual battle. We pray about fear. We pray in expectation. We have the miracle of a new heart. Satan, God. There's a spiritual battle. Okay, it's all the way through scripture. It doesn't have to be weird or spooky and kooky. If you know you have a soul, you know that this is a part of reality, even if you can't see it all the way. So they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. They grow in allegiance. Sanctification, they grow in allegiance. Pistos, right? Everyone say pistos. Okay, I see what's happening. You don't want to say it because it's a little weird and a little awkward. But you're going to say it because I got the microphone and so therefore I have all the power and I want you to sound as silly as I do saying it. That's really the truth. Okay, so on the count of three, you're going to say pistos. All right, one, two, three. That's excellent. You guys sound great. Way to go. Verse 19. So then, King who? Who's he talking to? 
Agrippa, just Agrippa and Rippa, okay? I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in Judea, the surrounding area of modern-day Israel, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent, churn, to God and demonstrate their, their repentance by their deeds. There should be evidence of your allegiance. 21, that's why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. Oh, I should have said that. Before this trial, that's what's happening. Paul almost lost his life. That's what happens right before this. You can go read it. It's amazing. Verse 22. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets, the messengers, and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah, you already know about that word, awesome, would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, miracle, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Whoa. Crazy. He describes his life after meeting Jesus now. He describes where he went, what he did, what God did, how he showed up, how more miracles happened, and how more people churned and followed Jesus. Here's the one thing, though, that I want to interpret from this 10 verses or whatever it was we just read. Here's the one thing. There's a big theme. And again, this is all the way through the Old Testament Bible. That's why we still need it today. We still need those 39 books. What Jesus is saying to Paul, any of the Jews in the audience... And a faithful Jew like Paul would have known this when he heard it from Jesus. Jesus is saying, get up, stand up, I've appointed you, I'm sending you. This is language of the Old Testament Bible. For Ezekiel, for Isaiah, for, for Moses, for Abraham, for all these other prophets and priests and leaders of the Old Testament, God said to them, get up, stand up, I'm sending you, you're a messenger, I'm giving you your marching orders. And today, you guys, what I want you to apply, as Paul would have applied this in the most radical way, is God is sending you. He's saying to us in this room, get up, stand up. I'm sending you, I'm with you, I'm appointing you. When you read these marching orders of Paul, I want you to read the marching orders for yourself. No matter whether you've come to faith this last month or whether you've been trying to follow Jesus for the last 40 years, please don't forget your commissioning. You are more prepared than you know. Going back over your story about how Jesus met you, practicing it, yes, in the silence and quiet of your own room, yes, with small groups, yes, after service today, practicing the structure of your story before Jesus, meeting Jesus, and after will take you leaps and bounds and prepare you for that moment when you're talking to someone and you use the power of your story. There's so much power in this room, you guys. Of the hundred plus people, there's so much power in your story of what Jesus did last week, let alone what he did years ago. God wants to use that power. we got to be the voice box. We, gotta ha we have to take some time of preparation. You know, I love what happened to Paul. Paul had this radical moment that we just read on the Damascus Road. And did he immediately run in and do all this missionary practice and all this missionary work to the church start the very next day? He took three years, at least. Some believe it could have been as much as 10 years before his first missions trip. Three years. You know what I think he was doing in that time? Honing his craft. Matching and marrying and connecting all the dots of his expert Old Testament tutelage with this new person of Jesus who he met. Connecting all the dots about how, of course, all that came before was pointing to Jesus. All, I'm, all we're asking you to do 
is take 15 minutes to practice your two to three minute story of what your life was like before Jesus, how you met Jesus, and all that he's been doing since. Take a few minutes to hone the craft the way Paul did. Take even a few minutes so we can be more ready in that moment. Paul never stops telling the story. He has this radical moment. Well, we're going to transition here, and then I want to hear from you. I meant to warn you before. I'm sorry. But if there's a few of you who want to share this morning, if you want to give it a shot, I'm going to go first with a very brief version of my story. And then we have microphones up here. Patrick's going to help over here, and Jan's going to help over here. And they're going to hold the mics. And I'm just telling you. You can come, you can come to the mic, and you can just share in two minutes what your life was like a little bit before Jesus, how Jesus met you, whether it was years ago, whether it was last week, and what Jesus has been doing in your life recently. The mic is going to be free to you. And I just want to tell you right now, we're the type of church that's trying to be conversational. And I know it's weird and strange, and I don't like speaking. And what if I say the wrong thing? Does that not mirror the same stressors and anxieties you're going to have when you're out there talking to someone as your coworker, your friend, or your family member, if not a little bit more intense? So no pressure at all, but we'll give you an opportunity right here in a minute to practice. Just what is it exactly that God's done in your life? What is he doing in your life? And you share that in, in 90 seconds, two minutes. You just share it real tight. And you just say, this is what God's been doing. This is how I met God. This is what it was like before, and this is what it's like after. And we can practice that even right here. But look at this. As you're thinking about that, and as God's maybe speaking to you, whether he's tapping you to do that, because that's going to inspire someone else, by the way. That's the other reason we do this. It's going to inspire someone else, because they're just like you in that way. Maybe even have such similar stories. And I love this. Seize the opportunity. Seize the opportunity today. Seize the opportunity when you leave this place. And church continues on Monday morning, right? Bucky's so good at saying that. But look what Paul does with King Agrippa as he winds down. I love his, I love his faith. Verse 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. This is a Roman guy, remember? This guy did not have the Jewish training that Paul had. I know you know a little bit about this culture, this Jewish culture. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian, Paul? Paul replies, short term or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Is that crazy? Is that awesome, his focus on the one? That he used his story, and the, all the while, and all the pomp and circumstance in the whole big auditorium, he was thinking about Agrippa the whole time. He's going after Agrippa. He's using a story that he could understand. He's relating to him. He's using the natural around him. And then he's using a little bit that Agrippa might be familiar with the prophets. And then he tells his story, makes it personal for himself. And then he pitches a question to him and a challenge to him. I'm praying for you, Agrippa. Is that crazy? We don't know what happened in Agrippa's heart from that seed that was planted that day. Agrippa could be up in the, in the good place with the rest of us. We don't even know how, Paul, how God used Paul in that moment. Are we ready today for those moments that we're going to face each and every day? I shared a little bit of my story already, and I'll give you the 90-second version right now, and then I want to hear from you. I was, I was a washed-up, sheltered, sheltered, spoiled, selfish brat of a kid through high school. 
culminated with the moment of an ex-girlfriend from freshman year as we're getting our cap and gown. And I was flapping my gums like I always did, sarcastic Ben. And Katie spins around, never forget, I give her whole name except for that this is recorded. And Katie spins around and says, gosh, Ben, quietest girl in school. Gosh, Ben, do you always have to be so sarcastic? Wow. Hit me right between the eyes. And God used Katie to make me think about how my heart, even born and raised as a Christian, I was not being a very good example of a little Christ out in my school and in my world and in my workplace. And it challenged me to think differently about how I could represent him more. And I decided to go to a Christian college and God used that Christian college to train me up in the ways of doing church work. And now it's been almost eight years, you guys. It's been almost eight years that I've got to preach, to lead, to organize people towards mission, towards vision. And there's been people whose lives have been changed as a result of my leadership. That's crazy. You guys think that's selfish that I would proclaim that? What did Paul say? I pray that you would be as I am, a free person, clear about their calling that God might use in a powerful way to change the world. I can boast because I boast in Christ Jesus. It's not me who does it, but him in me who does this work. And he wants to do it in you. Not just the paid church worker. He wants to do it in you. Just watch what he does. Some of you have far more potential for influence than me. You're leading organizations. You're leading in your business place. You're leading at school and with friends and family. And he wants to use you in that kind of powerful way. So there, I went first. Is there anyone else who would be brave enough, bold enough? We get even one or two people that want to share how God met them, you know, from a time ago or even recently, what you were like before Christ, even last week, how Christ met you and what he's kind of been doing since meeting him. Yeah, cool. Hi, I'm, is this on? There you go. Hi, I'm Julia. Um, what I always say is that Jesus came and he rescued me when I was completely broken, when my marriage was broken, when I had no hope. And I thought, what's the purpose of living anymore? Right. He came and he totally rescued me. And actually my youngest daughter, her name is, um, her middle name is Eliana, which means God answered. And that's my testimony that he answered my call. And it's been an ongoing um, story of redemption in my life. Um, he's constantly giving me um, more insight and more healing and deliverance. And I, I just, that's my story. It's a story of total redemption. Yo! And, yes. And, <laughs> yes. Oh, keep going. Keep going. Go, Julia. I was just going to say, and um, now we have a, a marriage that's um, flourishing is probably the word, thriving. And we have um, three healthy children, and that's in itself is a total miracle if you knew my story, <laughs> totally, in all details. So it's a miracle. Come on, give it up. Thank you, Julia. It's beautiful. Well executed. You're ready. Anyone else? That was great. Yeah, we'll get you all. So this is one of the scariest things I've done in a long time. And if you know me, talking usually isn't something I have a hard time with. Um, but I 
also grew up in the church. I grew up in ministry. My mom was always leading some sort of um, group and I got to see a lot of the behind the scenes. I didn't want to be like that. I got to see a lot of the religious leaders and people that were supposed to really set the example, being the example for who I did not want my God to be. And I remembered um, when I was 18, I wanted this huge story. I wanted like God came into my life and he, there was lights and all of this kind of stuff and I never had that. So I was in the middle of leading a bunch of youth kids and I had to step away. I had to tell them, I'm sorry, but I don't actually know who God is. And um, I left and I joined into every single group that I felt like needed love because I wanted to love them the way that I wish that the church had loved me. Mm. And um, years and years of just being used and being around a whole bunch of broken people and not having that um, foundation of Christ really, really tears somebody down. And... um, I just, I got so low and I remember thinking in my head, I just, I keep finding all of these people that are so broken and I keep trying to help them, but nothing is happening. And I had a daughter and I never wanted a kid. I never wanted to be responsible for anybody else's life. Yep. <laughs> and God was like, well, let me change your, let me change your plans. <laughs> so I had a daughter and I looked at her and I just remember God saying, she She needs you to love her unconditionally, and you do. You do love her unconditionally. So this is what I've done for you your whole life, and I've kept you safe. And nothing that has happened to you has been by your own hand. Mm. You have not been saved, and you have not been kept by all these people who need you because you're awesome. (laughs) It's been because I made you to love them. But don't forget where that love comes from. So I had to step back and think, I really was surrounded by all these people that were so broken and I had a chance to give them the one thing that could have helped them, but I didn't have it. I knew who God was. I could read you the scriptures. I could do all that, but I didn't know where God fit in in my life. And it wasn't until I had a child that I loved unconditionally that God said, now love yourself because Mm. I loved you first. Mm. Yeah, give it up there. And it's, it's really ironic that the thing that you're called to do is the thing that you're most terrified of. So mm. as soon as he started talking about telling your story, my heart literally was beating out of my chest. Mm. I, I, and I don't have a problem with that, but I know that it's because God actually wants to use me. Mm. And I can't be afraid of that anymore because people need him a lot more than I need to Come be on. comfortable. Yes, dude. Thank you, Courtney. Give it up for Courtney. Come on. Tell them who you are, brother, and hold that mic up nice to your chin there. My name is Greg. Um, I think like a lot of people in Orange County, um, I grew up Catholic. And I always felt myself uh, just desiring more. Uh, I have a heart for the Catholic Church, but in so many ways, it's, it's more of you go in, you go through the motions, and there's not a core relationship there with Jesus. So I was very lucky. My parents were uh, very kind in that. They let me, as a middle schooler, uh, go to a Protestant church with my friends, and it changed my life. It really did. Um, there's this person, Jesus, that wants to have a relationship with us, that wants to give us so much more, and that's my story. I mean, I grew up religious, but it didn't mean anything until I made it my own. Um, there's this, this, and God has proved himself so faithful in that, that we give him 
what we have, and he gives us back so much more than we yeah. could ever possibly imagine. And it's he's been faithful. Um, there's this uh, great verse that always sticks with me. It says, you can cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And through years and years of severe medical trouble, trials, tribulations, we all have them. Jesus never said this life was going to be easy, uh, but he said he'd be there with us. Mm. And he's proved himself faithful for that. In that. So, I mean, my story is not outrageous. That's everybody's story. Um, but I could see in my heart that that's the best relationship I've ever had and ever will is with Jesus and with God. So, uh, I mean, I think that you hit, hit the nail on the head. I mean... It does, our story doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be miraculous to be true and to be moving to people. So, yeah, yeah this is, it, it's awesome. Yo. It's, yeah. Yeah, Craig. Thank you, dude. So good. Thanks, Patrick. Let's take one more over here, and then we'll move on to communion. Thank you guys for sharing. And you better give it up for this young lady when she shares, okay? Because it's no small thing. So I want uproarious applause. Hold that mic all the way up there. Hello, everybody. When I was uh, growing up, I always had a heart for God. My parents did not go to church, but they took my brother and me to Sunday school because they, as good parents, they wanted us to be exposed to lots of different uh, religions. So I had a heart for God. I joined a confirmation class, but it was very hard for me to see the love of God because of the other kids in the class, because I did not see a lot of kindness. I saw a lot of disobedience and rudeness and disrespect. Then I was lucky enough, I was blessed to go to Switzerland the summer after my sophomore year in high school. And while I was there, of course, this is in Zermatt, the base of the Matterhorn, and it's absolutely gorgeous. On August 9th, the night of my 16th birthday, they were planning a surprise party for me. And my counselor took me for a little hike while they were planning this party. And so we just sat down to rest, and this is, it's so beautiful there. I said something to, to Pam. I said, it's so beautiful, it just seems like heaven. And that got her to ask me, what do you believe about heaven? And we started this wonderful discussion about heaven and Christianity, and I learned about how Christ fit into the picture. Remember, I had a belief in God, but I just didn't know that Jesus had really had died for me. Right. And he had the power and he had the love for me, which was just super. Yeah. I really loved that. And I got involved in Young Life in high school and then Campus Crusade for Christ in an in InterVarsity Fellowship in college. And I had, uh, um, in my 20s, I started pulling away from God because there were a lot of things that were not going well in my life. And I thought, what's going on here? This is really strange. It's like I had these questions, I had these problems, I had these doubts, and it seemed like that there were people who wanted to be with me who weren't necessarily Christians. And so I kind of got drawn into their world and had a very wild life for a while. And gradually God started bringing me back. And it was really nice because now I really see his forgiveness because I had, mm. when I was younger, right. I, um, I tried to be a good girl, even though there were some things that I wasn't so good at. Um, but now it was like I knew I had really been bad. <laughs> it was really proven. And now God was extending that love and forgiveness to me. And, um, and it's just so neat because it's just been a gradual process that I get, keep getting closer and closer and closer to him. 
And there have been a lot of hard things in my life, and each of those, God has brought me closer because I can't do it in my own power. I just have to keep throwing up my hands to him and say, it's too much for me, God, here, you, it's yours, you take it. Yeah. And he is allowing me to be able to continue to trust in him and believe in him and um, allow his love to flow through me um, to other people. So thank you for letting me share. Yeah, come on. Thanks, Jan. Thank you. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you so much. Guys, did you see what happened there? Yeah, it was radical. People took that step of faith just to even share their story. But the thing I want you to get there is from the base of the freaking Matterhorn, okay, to, to childbearing, to a marriage, to a health crisis, no two stories are going to be identical. Praise God for that. Why? Because no two people are identical. And Jesus wants to use the particular nature of your story to meet someone exactly where they're at and their issues with raising their kids and their issues with their marriage and their health crisis in every single high and low. They want you to know forgiveness. Oh, I love that she added that detail so that she might know forgiveness, added an authentic peace to her faith that she needed, that she was without. So as we take communion, you guys, this is something we do every, almost every Sunday at Watermark. There's communion stations at the front and the back. You can circle up with someone. If you're newer to, to the church, um, look for someone who's looking for you to circle up. Or take it on your own. And take this communion as a reminder of what Christ did for you. And the charge that we have to go forth and share our story. And if you're giving an offering, if you're bringing an offering today, you can do that at this time as well. There are offering boxes at the doors. You can see those at the exit. We're going to continue to worship as we take communion. And the offering, bringing our, our dollars and cents to God, is a form of allegiance, isn't it? It's a form of worship, and it's a form of allegiance. Growing in faith with Him, learning to trust Him with this thing that we hold so dear, that we hold so precious. And so pray about that. Take time to pray about it. And find out what God's calling you to do with the things that are most precious. To trust him with greater and greater levels of allegiance and faith and trust and relationship. I love that every single person talked about a relational God. Thank you, Lord, for that. Let's pray right now and we'll take communion. Thank you, Jesus, that you are real and you are personal and you are imminent. You are present. You are right here. You are not so far off, Lord. You are not such a distant God that you cannot be reached. Thank you so much for being personal and relatable to every single person here. Thank you for the stories in this room. I am floored thinking about what you could do with a hundred stories in our city and in our county. I am filled with excitement and joy, and I'm just giddy to think about what you could do with a hundred stories, Lord. None two alike. Thank you so much, Lord, for our story. You're the author of these stories. May you use them in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.